Welcome to the Election 2020 series of The Candidate. We're sitting down with each party leader and putting your questions recorded by you to them to help you decide who to vote for on February 8th. I'm Christina Finn, political correspondent with thejournal.ie, and for this first episode, we sat down with Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin. We were inundated with questions since we put the call out, and there were so many topics you wanted to get covered. We tried to get through as many as we could, but the first question to Micheál Martin was from Brian Murphy and Jim McGann on the surprise election issue of the pension age. My name is uh, Brian Murphy. I'm 50 years of age, uh, married, living in Dublin. Um, I'd be very concerned that the likes of Fianna Fáil in the coming years would look to extend the pension age to a situation where most people would end up never accessing the, the pension. Um, and I'd like to hear his view in relation to a situation or this situation whereby the likes of him, TDs, ministers, senior civil servants don't have to wait until the national pension age to receive you know, very generous uh, bonuses and very generous pensions, but yet they expect the rest of us on to, wait, to wait until we're in our 60s. Um, and I'd like to know if that's a policy that Fianna Fáil would look in the future that everybody would receive pensions at the same age. I'm 54 years of age and I work as a sales representative which incorporates a lot of daily mileage. I've worked since the age of 19 which makes me almost 35 years as a PAYE. For the first time ever I will be voting left unless you Michal guarantee me that I'll receive my just reward of a pension in the year of my 65th birthday. If I hear anything like consultation, etc., then I've got my answer from you, and you'll have left me with no alternative but voting left. Thank you, Michal and Christina. Jim again from Limerick. Well, two things. First of all, we're going to make sure that people at 65 don't have to sign on the dole for, for the three months after uh, they, they, they get the benefit. Of, and so there will be a transition payment brought in uh, to cover that and also 66 euros. And we won't be going ahead with the 67, the extension to 67. That's been in legislation for 10 years now. Well, sorry, less than 10 years. But um, uh, the and, and, and that's important. OK, the most important thing with pensions is that into the future, as the country develops, that so we have we have a sustainable pension system that people will get their pensions and that's our guarantee we want people to get pensions um when they retire uh, and we'll be increasing that pension uh, on an annual basis by five euros um, a year over the ne- over the next five years um and um that is our commitment um and th- but there will have to be an examination i know uh, as jim said there there have to be an examination of the overall situation but i actually think uh, that there has to be fairness too between private sector and public sector workers and I don't think you can have one rule for one and another rule for others. Leo Varadkar has come out today to say that um, the transition payment will apply to 66 year olds onward and that 65 year olds will have to sign on the dole subsequently because of it won't actually kick in until 66. Is that your position? Or is no we're 65. You'll yeah. be 65 so there yeah. will be no um, there'll be a transition payment uh, yeah. kicking in at the 65 and and also interesting question there. And, and I think one of the points I would make is this thing got the reason for all of this in the first place was sustainability of the pension okay but there was meant to be auto enrollment was meant to have been developed where we create greater pension cover for people in, in in the private sector in general but that has been very slow slowly rolled out secondly um there's been no preparation for this um and it is not on that people 
who at the end of their working life would be forced to sign on. Um, was it a surprise coming up on the doorsteps from well, the, candidates? Well, or? The unions, to be fair, I think, um, have raised it as a campaign issue. Um, and uh, relatively lately, but they have. Uh, and uh, as I said last night in the debate, uh, I think Brendan Howland did raise it at the Ardesh, even though he would have been involved originally in putting But that's fair enough to you. You can change. Um, so it, it is an, an issue for people and we have to respond to it. And the issue, I suppose, of gold-plated pensions for TDs, getting those at 50, that really seems to irk a lot of people in terms of their having to wait. Well, it's gone up um, now in the, in the week. There was reforms of that. Uh, and in fact, the pension was reduced um, back in 2009. But do you understand, I suppose, I the difficulty do, that yeah. people and everyday um, people would have in relation to having theirs pushed out and having to, to sign on for, for you know minimal payments when yeah, there's I, quite large ones for politicians early on? Not that early now anymore. Um, well, 50 or, or, or even 60, you know, it's a lot yeah. earlier than the 65. It is earlier, yes, of course. And But then you have other problems as well that people get into politics, lose out, and then they're left in limbo as well. So it's every, there's, there's many complexities to pensions. Um, but I think the more fundamental point is that the state pension should be available to people. And also, I think, into the future, contracts we should work with employers. People may not want to retire. Now, some people will and they should be entitled to retire, but many people want to keep going or want to do an extra bit or want to do uh, maybe half a week's work and still make their contribution to the workplace in terms of the knowledge and expertise that they've grown up that's important as well so no signing um, on for the dough for 65 year olds upwards and yeah. review will be taken yeah, the transition place. payment is coming in yeah that's what I'm and uh, i suppose the other issue that's kind of massive in terms of this general election campaign is housing um i know it's something that your party has been uh, pushing now um, throughout the last couple of days and uh, making a number of announcements about SSIA saving schemes and upping the, the building of houses. Um, but one issue, I suppose, that readers were concerned about and got in touch with is uh, in relation to the rent freeze. My name is Richard Talbot and I'm renting in Rathgar, Dublin 6 at the moment. My question for Micheál Martin is concerning Fianna Fáil's opposition to a rent freeze. Further to party spokesman Darrow O'Brien's statement on Monday that Fianna Fáil would not support a rent freeze if elected to government as being unconstitutional, are your party not willing to at least test this legal advice you've received in the courts? Or indeed, if the constitution is such a barrier to a rent freeze, why not propose a referendum on this big issue rather than simply giving up at the first hurdle? At the time when the, the, that motion was going through, I mean, rents are too high and they're going up very high and, and there's an issue there and the, the, the rent pressure zones uh, haven't worked to the degree that people would have hoped and there needs to be an examination around the rent issue. But I was very conscious, like we had asked the government for its legal advice at the time and they didn't release it, but we thought that no one thought there would be an election in February, if we're honest. People thought this would go to committee and, at com and people listening mightn't get the ins and outs of the doy, but basically the second stage is just a general debate. You allow it into committee where all the implications of this could be examined. Legal supply, would it affect, for example, the supply of new houses? Would it act as a disincentive to some landlords to exit the market? We wanted those issues teased out and also the constitutionality. Now, I'm very conscious. I'm, I'm in a general election. I don't want to make false promises. I don't want to make commitments that will not be realised as soon as the general election is over. And there's a very good example of that in legal terms the upward rent you remember the upward rent only, only. Uh, issue and to, I think it was Labour and Fine Gael back I think it was 211 announced um, that uh, they would ban uh, upward rent only reviews uh, and of course they were told legally it wasn't possible at the time uh, but they ploughed ahead made the commitment solemn commitment and as soon as the election was over incredibly they then announced 
we can't do it because of unconst it's unconstitutional. So I'm not going to make a promise. But you've committed on the pensions issues to have a review of it or to look yes. at it and perhaps tease it out. Is that something that you're willing to commit for to a rent freeze in terms of you were happy for it to go to committee for issues to be teased out? Can you give that yeah. same commitment for we when can, you're well in government? Well, obviously, if we're in government, there'll be, we have an attorney general. We can get more, you know, we can get other uh, reassessment in terms of the legal uh, implications of it. And also, perhaps in the new dial, have a proper teasing out of the issues, which we didn't have this time. Uh, because it's not simple either, and it does, it's not the answer. You know, it can it can be counterproductive in some respects. But at the moment, um, because there's a number of issues around the housing. We're proposing a tax credit for for renters. Um, we're uh, help. We want to help young buyers who are trapped in this rental thing in terms of the SSIAs to try and give young people a chance to save, and, and make an incentive. You know, help them with their savings for a deposit. That's a limited scheme for the first time buyers. Um, so we're very conscious of how rent is, is taking but so much. Stating that things are unconstitutional is a word that is bandied around a lot by politicians. Well, this is a senior. This is not by politicians. This is a senior barrister making. Yeah, but the, you can also opinion. get other senior barristers like well, David Kenny from Professor uh, yeah. of Law and Trinity, which says that he said in uh, an opinion piece actually for the journal that really it's the courts um, that decide what is unconstitutional. And having looked at the bill, there's a good chance that in defence of the Oireachtas judgment and the scale of the housing crisis, that the courts would uphold the bill. There's a good chance. I mean, I can't be. This is these are elect, these are solemn election commitments people want from us. Uh, we can't go on a wing and a prayer, and say we're going to do something. But using the word unconstitutional in an but it's election. It's not using a word. It's an opinion. Like it's a very substantial opinion. So it's just an given. opinion and not. No, it's a legal fact. opinion which you have to take on board. And no, of course, any legal opinion is in fact, but it's a very strong legal opinion which should govern your decision to make a commitment to people. Uh, I think what we can do. You're correct. We can examine it in its full uh, breadth. Uh, once we get into the, the new dial, and it should be examined, because I'm not uh, instinctively against it. Uh, I think something has to happen in relation to rents. Um, Obviously, the supply side is the ultimate way of dealing with this. And we do need, and we have committed to, we want to build about um, 50,000 affordable houses and 50,000 social houses. Build them directly, because that, that's the most effective way. I think, and on the rent pressure the zones, crisis. you've said that you are in favour of controls. Um, you're looking at, I think, strengthening if the rent can, pressure yes. zones. What yeah. exactly would well, strengthening... Again, can, we, can we reduce the, the level of increase? Okay, uh, so are we looking so at a 2% perhaps? Well, I, I'm not going to get into specifics here. We're going to but it'll be lower, hopefully, from yes, the 4%. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, another question I suppose we had in the Eighth Amendment. It's something, I suppose, there was circulation of a photo in the last week of Fianna Fáil members that voted um, against the legislation and um, one of our readers was concerned about that. My name is Lewis Clarcy and I'm from County Wicklow near Blessington. My question is, how can Fianna Fáil shake off the reactionary image it gained, particularly among young people during the Eighth Amendment debate, when a majority of its TDs, including senior figures like Michael McGrath, stridently opposed the removal of the ban on abortion. You know, it was a difficult well, time. You kind of stood up, um, led, yeah. uh, you know, from the front, I think, on that issue. A lot of people would have I commended you for I think one of the best it. things of, this, of that debate and of the social change that has occurred with marriage equality and the passage of the Eighth Amendment has been the more mature way that Irish politics has dealt with it. And I, I did bring in the freedom of conscience when in our party <coughs> in 2013 for the uh, legislation of the X case. Uh, and I think that was a game changer in terms of facilitating, it was a catalyst for change within the dial itself, because Fine Gael followed suit in relation to the Eighth Amendment. And that allowed parties, party members to, to follow their own conscience on the issue. Um, and so, for example, on the Oireachtas Committee, it was actually Fianna Fáil members were key to the actual 
motion that eventually came before the people or the proposal that became before the people and Billy Kelleher, Lisa Chambers and <coughs> Senator Neville Sullivan ensured that getting through a committee. I remember Sinn Féin couldn't even support it and they had their issues. I'm not saying that in any partisan way. It's just that they abstained because they had issues too with members in their party. Um, I think about 20 odd members of Fine Gael didn't tell the, the news media what way they voted. They were probably quieter than people in Fine Gael who decided to <laughs> upfront or affront about their position. But it's a very difficult issue as well. For many people and we've come a long way on this issue in this country I think we should acknowledge and respect the fact that people have really um, genuine held beliefs in, in relation to the issue and my sense when I was cam- out canvassing on that issue was that there was a continuum of views uh, and you have people who are definitively in favour you have people definitively against you had lots of people in between who weren't so sure. And Do you still I, think I, I it's something that, that so is on the back of the party a bit that you might no, have I think, to... I think, look, I think the, the party has, members themselves have learned a lot from that experience. But the, but the most important thing from the Fianna Fáil point of view is that they respect the decision of the people um, and absolutely committed, obviously, to following through on that. Um, and um, and I, I think what would be a great pity, and I was surprised during the election that there was an attempt made you know, to sort of resurrect as if somehow this would get overturned, which is completely... Uh, a false kind of hair set up, you know, uh, sorry, this is a false story put out there uh, because, of course, this is a, a referendum uh, and uh, it's it has been legislated for. Uh, the last trial passed that um, and, uh, you know, uh, that is the position. And I think what, what, what was important about that was the consensus that developed, the cross-party cooperation among different TDs from different parties on the issue, working together to bring about change. We shouldn't lose that. And I'd be afraid and if, if people try and use it in a partisan and divisive way during the election, to a certain extent, we'll be undermining the spirit of cross-party, you know, genuine individual uh, d- uh, debate that I think was there for the marriage equality and was certainly there uh, in the Eighth Amendment. Um, another few questions that came in for us were from people who... I suppose they're looking for a bit of hope um, in terms of their living, um, you know, their wages or buying a house and all the rest. Um, one a woman, Claude, got in touch to say that she's um, living at home and, and that's a challenge for her. Hi, Michal. My name's Claude. I'm 26 and I'm from Dublin. I'm a psychologist and I have a 28 year old sister who's a doctor. A lot of my friends are teachers, nurses, accountants, etc. And currently we're all living at home with our parents. We're nearing retirement whilst also caring for their parents who are ageing. A lot of my friends have also emigrated to start their adult lives, which is something that doesn't actually feel possible right now in Ireland. My question for you is, what is it that your party plans to do that's different to what's already been done? And also, how do you plan to manage the conflict of interest that exists where policymakers and legislators are also landlords? Our housing policy focuses very much on that experience and Claude's issues, really, and she's correct that many, many people are living with their parents. Um, so that's why we want to try and get housing back to an affordable level. So on state lands, we would build 50,000 affordable houses. That's our commitment. That's what we want to do. But also, and because there are, because we, we developed last year a housing from the opposition benches, we forced the government to put 300 million into a fund for affordable houses under an affordable And what's an affordable house to Fianna Fáil? Well, it, it depends obviously on the location, but we're looking at 250, uh, 250,000. Um, obviously, the land would be a subsidised element of that. Um, and 
because we believe the state has to get involved in this because we have the lowest level of home ownership since 1971. Uh, and this is a real issue. I think home ownership is good. It anchors people in their communities and so on. So uh, that is probably, the, we're probably the party that's most committed to the affordable housing. We want to deliver it. We're frustrated with Fine Gael on it because even though we did 12 months ago get that agreement on the 300 million, very little happened for the following year. The Dublin Corporation, all the Dublin councils and Cork Corporation are ready to go on this. Um, but the, the criteria was never published by, by the government in relation to it. Uh, so that's the big piece. Secondly, the SSIA is to give people, if, if for every three euros we would add a euro in people's saving for a deposit, because we understand if people are paying high rent, they're finding it very difficult to save at the same time, and there's a terrible squeeze there. And what do you say, I suppose, for Adker saying that, you know, they're going to put it back in through uh, taxation rather than your well, method? Well, we're, we're continuing to help to buy in uh, as well uh, in, in relation to that. Uh, so when you put the two together, you get a, a much better package um, uh, for people in that situation in terms of helping them to be able to afford to buy a house. Uh, and we're also bringing in a tax credit for renters of 600 euros. It's a, it's a modest start, but it's a start. There was a tax credit some years ago that 10 was. 10 years ago there was, yeah. yeah. And would you and look to increase that perhaps as well, the gonna, years we're, go we're on? committed to 600, obviously, depending on resources, because we have to work within the, the 11 billion framework the Department of Finance said that's the amount of discretionary money that might be available for the next five years. That's what we want to keep. The, obviously the budget situation intact um, and so so everything is within that but uh, we we have a range of measures I think that will help um, not just on, on the housing front but also in terms of health and reducing costs in terms of health uh, in and around the drug payment scheme for example in and around um, and, back, and on, back to 100 uh, threshold and, and the uh, abolition of the... On the um, issue of um, housing I suppose it, it does have um, your party does have some what of a legacy in terms of um, the housing um, of the past, the boom and bust, which is something that well, Leo Varadkar has mentioned. I just want to play a clip from Colm yeah. here, who um, is referring back to that time and has a question for yourself. My name is Colm Cusick and I live in North Kildare. And my question to Mr. Martin is as follows. Why should I, in the squeeze middle, trust Fianna Fáil with our vote, considering they saddled every citizen of Ireland with 44,000 euros of debt from their previous term in office? Why should we trust you now when you did nothing about it in a cabinet seat in 2008? The first thing I would say there, um, the fundamental mistakes made then was, was to, we overspent in, in, in the heat of that economy and reduced taxation too much. The opposition parties, by the way, wanted us to spend more and reduce taxes. That was the nature of how politics was at the time. And people didn't see that crash coming and many people didn't see it um, in terms of the European Commission and others but that's, you know, I don't want to go in, into all of that other than to say it was a global economic financial crisis in the first instance but the mistakes made here exacerbated its impact in Ireland and there had to be a bank guarantee in the end of the day uh, and we did produce an economic plan Brian Lennon, the late Brian Lennon which did create the foundations for recovery plus the fact that we have a strong modern industrial economy in terms of the multinational sector, which proved resilient at the time. Uh, and then Mario Draghi at European level uh, saved the euro by his interventions and brought in a low interest uh, range. But can Colin trust that we won't but go back to issue any of, of trust, that? Yeah, the issue of trust is for the nine years since then, even in opposition, we've changed politics. I don't think you've, you can... I, I didn't challenge someone to say to me, I find an opposition has been more constructive and responsible in the last nine years. Even when we had 20 seats, we supported the fiscal treaty uh, and we supported budgets if we felt the measures were right. Um, and likewise, in the last five years, four years, sorry, when we didn't have the numbers to go into government ourselves, 
we put the national interest first and we facilitated measures and we ensured that the country had a functioning government, which I think has to happen after a general election. And, and we facilitated that. Another huge <coughs> issue, I think, for uh, people as they go to the polls is childcare. It's one that the government um, has tried to <coughs> grapple with yeah. in the past um, with, you know, some measures here and there in terms of early childcare. Um, but there are some real concerns, I suppose, about getting, you know, particularly women back to work in terms of obviously that would be an obvious one to yeah. get taxation back in. But um, what would you say, I suppose, um, here we have Andy from Dublin who is concerned about that very issue. My wife and I are holding off on having a second child due to the cost of childcare. With the pension issue surfacing again, free childcare for young working families has the potential to increase our birth rate, therefore leading to more workers in the future and more tax revenue to pay for pensions. I believe a tax increase should be implemented to fund this as everyone should pay for the future of the country, not just parents. Can you please ask Michal what his reviews are in relation to this proposal? Thank you. First of all, I think uh, there is a huge issue around affordability of childcare. There's a huge issue around uh, the human resources within childcare in the sense that people are not being paid, uh, you know, the, the wages that they should be paid and the career pathways aren't there like they would be in primary education or in secondary level education for those who teach. And uh, I was involved in early education uh, from a policy perspective from the late 90s onwards. And um, I think there's a lot of organisational stuff that needs to be done uh, in terms of trying to restructure childcare. Uh, in the interim, we, we, we will be increasing the subsidy substantially uh, for parents, uh, up to 80 euros, I think the exact figures, and uh, for you, uh, but also we'll be announcing that. And we'll be extending the ECC scheme to 40 weeks. Uh, from 38 uh, and you're, you're, they're in terms of increasing tax which I think is the, the key that's not going to happen uh, there's no at the, over the next couple of years there's no you know I don't think that would is a sustainable proposition right now people are actually campaigning for reduced taxes but I think his point is a very valid one in that um, depending on the type of society we want that's why in our budget we're going three to one in favour of investment in public services as opposed to just doing it all for taxation cuts or uh, evening it out more. Ours is probably one of, along with other, you know, other parts. I think Fine Gael would be uh, less so on the investment in public services, significantly less than ours. We'll be investing heavily in public services. And the big call at the moment is on health services. Well, that's uh, an issue I, I want. And, uh, no, I'm just saying in terms of, and so we have to try and balance out between childcare, healthcare services, education generally, and of course the housing issue, which we're putting a lot of emphasis on. In this yeah, manifesto. some big ticket items, yeah. I suppose, that, that the next government will have to grapple with. On the issue of health, it's a uh, one you're very familiar with in uh, your past uh, brief, um, but obviously the <coughs> trolley numbers, the call, uh, the submissions that I've had in over the last 24 hours in relation to health uh, are very significant. Um, and this one from Conor O'Gara, uh, a first year doctor, was one that really stuck out for me. Hi, Michal. As a first year doctor uh, facing the reality of HSE understaffing on a daily basis, including regular 24 hour shifts, and with the majority of my current cohort of interns planning to move to Australia or New Zealand in the coming months, uh, I just want to know what changes would a Fianna Fáil-led government implement to improve working conditions in the HSE and therefore encourage retention of nurses, doctors and other healthcare workers? Thanks very much. Well, in the first instance, we would end the discrimination between pre-2012 doctors and post-2012 doctors in terms of the pay gap and pay differential. Uh, there are about 400 vacancies, um, currently maybe somewhat less than that, within the consultant vacancies. Uh, and that means the absence of senior clinical decision makers, and that's exacerbating 
um, the the manpower problem. Uh, and we, we would hire 4,000 more nurses. We'd hire 1,000 more consultants. Now, there is a huge, I think, human resource issue within health. And I would, as soon as I get into government, initiate a major a review of, of how human resource practice happens. And I tell you why. I had an example recently where a young person came back to Ireland, applied for a job in the HSE. This is people we want now in terms of particular discipline. Uh, got very high up in the panel, got the job. Was told you're, you're going to get the job. Months went on. Person gave the notice to the private sector company, lost the job. Uh, sorry, lost her private sector job then, you know, was laid off because the person had to get somebody else. Uh, but meanwhile, hadn't got the, the, the job at the HSA. And I'd made represent, I had to make representations on that. That was that person's first experience of the HSA human resource function. And I'm saying to myself, here's a young, talented person, wants to come back, live in Ireland, uh, wants to come back and set up a family here and so on. And that's the first experience. And that just follows through then in terms of the conditions that the junior doctors are experiencing, which are quite terrible now. You know, we rely too much on doctors and training for service. That's one of the fundamental flaws in, in, in our, our, our system. Uh, and that's where more and more consultants coming in would be better in terms of having a more consultant-provided service as opposed to a consultant-led service, which depends heavily on junior doctors for you know providing the services and working long hours, uh, which are quite dangerous in themselves. So, and also then there needs to be f- better diagnostic equipment in 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 the emergency departments, uh, and we because that would create better oppor- you know conditions generally because people are frustrated they can't get the scan done there's pressures left right and center they don't have access to diagnostics they don't have a proper backup team when they come back and all of that is essential i think to retain good quality personnel. just anxious on time um Sorry. there's a few questions that i want to fly through um <clears throat> are you concerned about i suppose the narrative that's been ongoing in terms of direct provision the last year that's something um this uh, reader just wanted to have a few words about Hi, um, my name is Christian Ara. I'm an auditor of Falter Refugee Society in NUI Galway. And our question for you, Michal, is what are Fianna Fáil planning to do about direct provision and the disgraceful conditions that asylum seekers are being forced to live in, the human rights abuses that happen every day in regards to privacy and much other things, and the huge weight that it takes for asylum cases to be processed? First of all, migration is going to be um, is going to continue. It's going to be the story of the next... Uh, decade and more because of the way the world is moving um, many many more people will seek asylum in the west uh, where they have a chance to try and develop a better life that's going to continue in my view and then conflict drives on the refugee situation even further we saw that in syria and we're in a very troubled world and then you add climate change to that and you're going to get a constant migratory trail in my view to europe um, and to ireland so you but one has to manage that migration um, every country in the world has to manage migration and therefore our asylum uh, system uh, the problem is, this, is is the length of time it takes to apply and get a, and get a hearing and get the whole thing sorted now some of that is legal because people take it to the ultimate on, on the legal front which is their entitlement Do you think the Department of Justice has dropped the ball on, on this in the last number of years? In terms of lack of consultation with local communities yes because I think they were hoping to get it done as a fait accompli and then we had all the protests Now I think some people exploited those protests as well uh, I think there have been some improvements in terms of uh, direct provision of late I think the court's decision to allow people in direct provision to work is very important. I think education for people in direct provision is, is a must, and we must insist as There was a an issue of driving licences, I think, recently. Yeah, all of the that court. should be sorted out, in my view, um, because people need to get on with their lives, particularly while they're waiting here so long. 
Um, and particularly children need to be looked after in terms of their education needs. And I was involved last week in a case in Cork where we worked to try and make sure that three young boys were kept with their family and weren't sent to England, where it was the first country they had to come to, and to come into Europe, and that's where their asylum was going to be decided. But for the last year, they've been in, in, in UCC 1 and 2 in a secondary school. That's the type of humanitarian response we require. One of the issues, though, is that we have, there's about up to 800 people who could leave direct provision now. You know, they've granted permission to stay in Ireland, but there's no housing for them to go to, and they're staying in direct provision. That's a very real issue. Uh, so I don't think you can replace the direct provision system overnight, if I'm honest, and I want to give an honest answer, uh, because well, what you can do is make the quality of life much better. Uh, there have been moves in that direction in terms of people having greater self-reliance. Are you concerned about uh, the protests and things that have been happening? I, am, and yeah, that sort I, of I think the protests are, um, I think it's the fear of the unknown, in, in my view, at being drummed up and exploited um, wrongly, in my view, because we saw that in Wicklow. Things about a year ago, and, and then when and they went back to Wicklow afterwards, I said, look, this is fine. If you think a place like Mill Street have had um, asylum seekers for a long, long time, there's never been an issue then. They've integrated quite well into the local community. Um, and uh, so I think it needs to be managed, and we need to work with communities and consult and engage in advance in a, prof- in a proper upfront manner, and that's what should happen. Um, and, um, um, you know, I think there, overall as a country, I think, you, you know, um, we've managed better than others, I would argue, in terms of how we're dealing with this. But we could, you know, in, on, on the refugee front, we could do better, in my view. Um, jumping just completely to a totally different issue. Um, one that came in quite a bit over the last 24 hours is animal welfare. And Louise had concerns about this one. Hi, my name is Louise Hockney and I'm calling from Tipperary. My question to you, Hall, is not about what you can do for me, but it's about animal welfare in this country. I believe we have an appalling record in protecting animals here. And I suppose I refer to things like hair coursing, live exports, fur farming, intensive factory farming. And of course, the issue of horses all over the country dying of starvation with nobody taking responsibility for them. A few issues on animal rights there, but hair coursing, particularly, uh, you know, also, Bordnagon, there was an RT investigates in terms of the yeah. greyhounds issue there. It does seem to be something that continually comes up in terms of the way we look after animals in this country. Yes, and there's a there's a cultural issue here too. I mean, in, in, in rural Ireland, many practices developed over time, uh, such as coursing and so on like that, um, that people are cling to, right? Um, I've never you know, been involved in any, you know, it wasn't, obviously I came from an urban environment. Uh, I think the Greyhound uh, revelations were quite shocking. Um, I think 16.8 million euro yeah, goes to, I mean, would you be willing to the, continue the, to fund that? Well, the problem is at the moment we have thousands of dogs now in. I think this has to be de- dealt with over a number of years. Otherwise you'd have a massive um, animal welfare issue. Um, and people in the industry are saying they're going to clean up their act. I'm not convinced, to be honest. Uh, and they need to demonstrate that. Um, Will but you come I think down hard in terms uh, of that issue going? The, but in terms of issues like um, for farming, for example, we would prohibit that. Uh, we would we had signal our support for legislation in relation to that. Um, Hair coursing is a, is a controversial one. It's in controversial, terms of and I mean, uh, in our view, uh, the I think it's not going to be legislated for in the, in the short term, if, if I'm honest. But I do think it's a practice. That I think there needs to be engagement with, with people as well. And the, the, what I find as an urban person, when you engage more with people who are involved, a lot of people are genuinely involved in some of these industries and who would argue that they've done more, who, who don't want to be cruel to animals and all of that. But uh, the, 
And the situation with horsing is terrible, but the local authorities and others uh, have an impossible job, in my view, trying to deal with certain people who, you know, just um, treat animals in a very cruel uh, and unacceptable way and abandon horses or abandon greyhounds when they're of no longer any use to them. And I think we'd need stronger penalties in relation to uh, animal cruelty. Uh, one other issue, I suppose, um, came up was in relation to uh, the Data Protection Commissioner, the public service card. Yep. Uh, I don't have a clip of that here, but it's an issue that I suppose we've written about extensively in the journal um, in terms of the back you and forth been, yeah, um, yeah. between Regina Doherty and the department. If you get into government, are you going to drop um, that challenge against the Data Protection Commissioner and her report? I may very well, but I have to examine it first. If I'm, if I'm honest, I want to examine the full uh, comprehensive file on that um, because I'm concerned about the way Regina Doherty has approached the Data Protection Commissioner. I don't like the way the government has become quite aggressive, if I use... I think they have. And I think Regina was too negatively disposed to the Data Protection Commissioner and the very legitimate view she put forward because it seems to me that the department and the minister got it wrong. They didn't admit that they got it wrong and they're digging their heels in now. And I can see at one level, you know, the efficiency around the public service card. And for many people, they like having the public service card because it enables them to access services much more easily. On the other hand, I don't think the general public, well, sorry, maybe the public are ahead of the government on this. Uh, but a lot of people may not fully comprehend the enormous revolution that's going on in relation to data and the retention of data and how it can be manipulated against individuals and used against individuals. So the civil libertarian within me is saying we need a strong dose of caution here as to the state amassing um, large amounts of data, which could be for benign reasons initially, will be probably is for, sorry, is for benign reasons initially, but could potentially be used by wrong people negatively. So safeguards would have to be built in. Uh, and the data revolution is the big story of, of, of this era and we know that from the big multinationals it's all data it's all the harvesting of data is what's driving uh, the digital economy and, econ and econ economics in many sectors now uh, particularly retail consumer you name it um, and we just need to be careful in terms of of protecting the individual citizen and also we need to be respectful of the data protection commissioner and that's my pledge as a government, as leading a government. I would not, I would, we have to pledge bodies that we establish with an independent statute, you know, and who have an independent remit. And if we expect them to deal robustly with the Googles and the Facebooks of this world, and then we browbeat them as a government and say, don't be, don't be an irritant on us, please. Don't be getting awkward with what we want to do. That doesn't gel well with me. That's not healthy. Uh, just two quick uh, ones for you, Paul Corcoran on transport and cycling. Michal, as Taoiseach, would you commit to invest 10% of the total land in transport budget and cycling? Huge numbers of people are cycling despite the lack of safe, segregated cycle lanes. Will you fast track the Liffey cycle route, which has been delayed until 2024, first muted in 2011? Will you install a national cycling officer in the Department of Transport? and cycling officers within each council in Ireland to support cycling projects. Thank you. I believe in segregated cycleways, uh, and they have to be segregated. I'm very worried sometimes with the painted 
cycle away as that disappear into nothing yeah but they're very dangerous because they're given the illusion of safety and that people will observe them but they're quite you know a lot of motors don't if we're honest um and i i'd like to i mean i would support the idea of a national cycling officer and also one in each local authority of course there should be i'm impatient with and i would support the rapid rollout of that liffey cycle bit i'd be honest with you i don't have the details fully of it but i would be why because i can see in, in my own city as well there is a lot of areas where we could develop good cycleways quickly um, off the roads but that because they're natural old railway lines are in, in, in and around like we, we have a natural walkway in Cork from Rochestown right into the city centre and that could become a segregated cycleway and walkway um, for, for people and I think that, that planning is now coming on stream there with the council um, and we need to be doing an awful lot more of that there's also motorists I suppose parking on those cycleways which there's been a big cause for guard, more guard enforcement of them you know there's constant photos on social media from cyclists um, saying god they can't even use the ones that are already put down absolutely absolutely and I think it's because we it's a cultural and behavioural change that's required here I think the cycling community are making their voices heard much more loudly in the last number of years from what my observations of this uh, and I think we we, we are uh, committed to additional funding in our transport and infrastructure plan for cycling uh, and we, we, we believe it's healthy it's the right way to do in terms of climate change um, and it's something that should be supported which we did taxation wise in terms of bicycles m- many years ago in the use of the you know the tax relief for uh, cycling to work and so on like that and um, I'm all for it uh, myself uh, but it is dangerous at the moment in Dublin City I'm not going to pretend it isn't uh, and that needs to change and also you know the greenways and cycleways alongside greenways you know there's huge opportunities there that's why we went for a carbon tax ring fenced funding because we think the funding in that ring fence fund could be used to develop cycleways and and, and uh, much more quickly than we're currently doing as part of our efforts to achieve our climate change goals so we were the party along with one or two others who insisted on ring fencing that money because we, some parties like Fine Gael wanted to give it back to the people just as you taxed them. We felt that was not being honest because there's going to be huge money involved in requiring us to meet climate change agenda. Uh, and that money, at least if we put the money in a ring-fenced, legally ring-fenced fund uh, by legislation, it enables us to do much more in terms of cycling. Um, on the issue of being healthy, it's something I suppose you're uh, well touted for in terms of uh, getting out and about and your healthy eating and all the rest. Um, but just a bit of a fun one. Um, the big question I suppose everyone wants to know is from Peter in Donamede. And my question for Hall Martin is, has he ever had a spice bag? And what's his opinion also on veganism? Uh a spice bag, one of the most popular delicacies, I suppose, of any takeaway in Ireland. I haven't. Oh, <laughs> shocker. <laughs> God, that's a, that's a revelation now for many. Um, and uh, what's my opinion on... Veganism now. It's a, a one that's uh, very popular now. Um, yeah, I respect people who, who want to become vegan. Uh, I haven't become vegan, even though I have a very strong plant-based diet. Uh, I believe in food diversity. I'm very interested in food, as you probably know. Um, and uh, I'm not as, I suppose, directional on food. I, I don't like directing people. Well, I do, as in some respects, give up to people when I see them eating something I think they shouldn't eat. But you know what I'm saying? I'm not going to dictate that you shouldn't eat meat or you shouldn't eat fish um, um, because I think food diversity is important or metabolisms are different. And... Uh, I was reminded of this recently when a friend of mine came in to me and said, look, I, I have a complete B12 deficiency. And the GP, GP said to me, um, I need to um, 
he started eating meat again and um, he kind of noticed that meat wasn't on his plate for quite a while. <laughs> uh, but again, you can get B12 source from other sources. But a point I'm making for young children growing up, I wouldn't be as dictatorial on, on the fundamentals of food. Uh, and we do need food security in Ireland and in Europe. I'm very strong on that. I don't believe in that we should become dependent on importation of foods from carbon inefficient f- f- food production systems either. And so, uh, um, but I think we need people um, to, to realize that a substantial percentage of your diet should be plant based from a health perspective and a nutritional perspective. That's very, that's very important. Perhaps not spice bag based, but maybe that's a, a, a wrong that you'll write um, over the, the campaign trail <laughs> as we go forward. So thank you very much, Michal Martin, for joining us today with the Journal Daily. Thank you for listening to The Candidate with me, Christina Finn. Thanks once again for all your questions. And sorry if we didn't get to include yours. There really were so many. We'll be putting your questions to another party leader in the coming days. This episode was produced and co-edited by Laura Byrne and Nikki Ryan. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them.